You're listening to audio from Grace Community Church in Anger, North Carolina. More information about Grace Community Church can be found at graceccnc.org. Good morning. Yeah, you guys responded too. First service responded well, so glad you guys are awake. I'm awake. That's a good thing. Um, Some people will say sometimes like, uh, well, never mind. I won't say that. Anyway, I'm glad to be here with you all right now this morning. My name is Ricky, and uh, I'm grateful to get to preach this morning. Can I begin with prayer? Let's pray. Father, we thank you. And we can come together and hear your word read. Lord, we pray that the Holy Spirit will move in our hearts, minister to us, Lord, through uh, the preaching of the word. Lord, minister to my heart uh, as I communicate it. Lord, we pray the Holy Spirit will work to comfort us, convict us, Lord, challenge us. Whatever is needed, Lord, we pray your will be done. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Well, we're continuing our study through the book of Titus, and this is the second to the last sermon through the book of Titus. I think it's been, it will have been seven sermons through Titus. So this is sermon number six, and our text this morning is chapter three, verses one through seven. And tomorrow morning, not tomorrow morning, next week, Pastor Brad's going to pick up with verse eight and take us through the, the, the end of the book. So almost through our study through Titus, I hope it's been a blessing to you all. I know it really has been for me. Well, in case you weren't here last week, for the quick refresher, I'm going to give it to you uh, quickly again, remind you all why the book of Titus was written. Well, Titus, the book, is it's actually a letter, and it was written by the Apostle Paul to Titus, who was on the island of Crete. You see, Paul, he had gone through the island of Crete, and he had preached the gospel, and people believed in the gospel message. They believed in Jesus, and therefore, we have all these new Christians on Crete, these new converts, and now they need churches. So Paul, he left Titus there to establish churches. And Paul's written this letter to Titus so that he can give him direction in how to protect the teaching of the churches. And that will be through the leadership of the churches so that believers will live godly lives. Because remember, Titus, he's working with new converts. They've received, they believed the message. And now that they trust in Jesus, Paul wants to be sure that they know that they are to live godly lives. What we believe should, well, it should impact how we behave. And they have received the message. Now Paul wants to make sure they know that they are to live out the message. They're to live godly lives. Essentially, you could sum up the book of Titus with saying live godly lives if you wanted to. Uh, Paul talks about godly lives all throughout the book. In this short letter, he, well, he tells Titus how his life should be lived. Uh, as well, he tells us what leaders in the church, what their life how it should look. Uh, He tells all of us in the church, the Christians, the Cretan Christians applies for us today. He tells us how we should relate with one another within the church, what our lives should look like in relation to each other. And today in our text, he's going to show us how we should live with an unsaved world. It's important how we live. Titus has received these words from Paul. Now he has instructions to get that word out to the new Cretan Christians. This letter focuses so much on godly living because it is written a reminder to you as an instruction to those who have already believed in God. Now, although godly living clearly is the focus, it's important for us to know, which I reminded you all last week, that the goal of the gospel, though, isn't good behavior. No, the goal of the gospel is a regenerated heart, which then brings about godly living. A regenerated heart, that's a life that is changed 
by believing the news of Jesus. And therefore, a life that is lived under the rule of God. How do we live godly lives? We believe the gospel message. Although Paul focuses so much on living godly lives, we can't overlook the major theological sections in the book of Titus. Um, The first one was actually the first message I preached. It opened up the series, which was Titus chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. And then the second really theologically rich section, what I mean by that, the sections where Paul is just revealing to us something about God, would be last week's sermon, chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. And then the third one is from our text today, chapter 3, you will find it in verses 4 through 7. And thankfully, somehow, I don't know if it was intentional or not, Brad assigned me those three passages to preach. So I'm very grateful that I have gotten to really study and kind of wade in and then talk about and preach these rich theological sections that Titus gives us, um, that Paul gives us in this letter to Titus. It's important what we believe. And Paul, while he talks plenty about good works, Again, that's, I'd say, the main focus. He doesn't leave us without the gospel message to remember, which enables us to live godly lives. We saw five weeks ago when we looked at chapter 1, 1 through 4, that before you can live a godly life, you must first be chosen by God, and you must have a knowledge of the truth. We saw that five weeks ago. Last week in chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, we saw that before you live a godly life, you must receive the grace of God, which saves us and trains us. Five weeks ago in chapter 1, 1 through 4, we saw our motivation for living a godly life is the hope of eternal life that God promised before the ages began. And if you remember, God doesn't lie. Glorious news. And then last week, we saw that we are to live godly lives because of the coming glory of God. Even though Paul's main focus clearly is on godly living, he knows that We have no hope of living a godly life. No one does if they don't know the message of the gospel. So for more people to be able to live the message of the gospel, a godly life, the message first has to be protected, and then the message has to be proclaimed. Remember, that's why Titus says it's important how your leaders live because the message has to be protected. It's important how you live because you, everyone, are living in front of a watching world. Got to protect the message so that we can proclaim the message. Sound doctrine is needed for godly living. Well, today, we're going to be looking how that godly living looks, again, in front of a world that isn't godly. Our text is chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. As is our custom at Grace, I'm going to ask you to stand and uh, read the Word of God, hear the Word of God as I read it to you. It's going to be on the screen if you don't have it in your, uh, if you don't have your Bibles with you. So hear the word of the Lord coming to us, Titus chapter 3, beginning with verse 1. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our day in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal 
life. Amen. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. All right, you guys may be seated. Well, sometimes we need to be reminded who we are so that we know how to act. That's, that's the case we find here today in our text. And not much has changed, believe it or not, from almost 2,000 years ago, the Cretan Christians, and what we need to hear today. You see, the Christians in Crete, they found themselves newly converted, believing the gospel message, yet they were still living with people who did not believe in God. They were surrounded by them, people who lived the way they used to live, but that is the way that they no longer were, for they had been saved by God. So this message is for us today. If you work with unbelievers, this text is for you. If you go to school with unbelievers, this text is for you. If you have family or friends who are unbelievers, this text is for you. I think we can safely say that we can all identify with the message that Paul was writing to Titus. Just as the Christians in Crete, they lived with unbelievers, we too live with unbelievers. They're everywhere. Maybe it's not true for you, but it's, it's true for me. And I bet it was true for those Christians in Crete almost 2,000 years ago that they were surrounded by ungodly people who were living the way they used to live. And it's hard sometimes to not scoop down to our old familiar ways of living and engaging those who now are different than us, but engaging with them in ungodly ways. <laughs> Paul's saying, Titus, make sure they know now that they're saved how they relate. To an ungodly world, it matters. And the main point Paul is trying to get through today to the Cretan Christians in this passage is that he wants the Cretans who have been saved by God to live for God in front of those who do not know God so that they too might become heirs of God. That's a lot of God in that text. I'll read it again. It's up on the screen for you as well. That Paul wants the Cretans who have been saved by God to live for God in front of those who do not know God so that they too may become heirs of God. For us today, I'll put it this way. Show the world who saves. Live for God. Show the world who saves. Live for God. Let's look again at verses 1 through 2. It's going to be on the screen. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. Okay, and practically, what does a godly life look like? Well, a couple of weeks ago, Pastor Brad preached chapter 2, 1 through 10, and we got to see a bit of what a godly life looks like. Specifically, that passage is talking about what a godly life looks like within the community of Christians, how we relate to one another, how discipleship works. That's what it looks like. Well, today, Paul's saying, this is what a godly life looks like when you relate to those who are outside of the church. You see, because we're going to be relating to people outside of our house, and we all have house rules, but when we leave, we know that there are some other rules for example, when I'm at my house, there's no house rule about drinking milk out of the jug for daddy. If I want milk, I drink it out of the jug. My kids can't do that, but I can do it. So if you come to my house, you want to ask for a fresh jug of milk, we keep the fridge stocked because we go through like a million a week. So, um, but when we go to someone else's house, if I go to your house, I'll grab a glass. Don't worry. We have rules whenever we leave our home. Now, he's reminding them these things. They've likely heard this before. We know, and we've heard, but we too need to be reminded of what our life is to look like. I know I have to be reminded. Even still, when we go to someone else's house, well, I don't have to remind my kids to get a glass before they get milk. We do have to tell them, don't jump on their couch. 
They may jump on our couch. Don't throw the ball in their house. We let them throw the ball in our house. Don't, don't do this. Don't do that. This is a, yes, ma'am. Yes, sir. Thank you. Please. We, we, they know it. They've heard it a million times, but we tell them every time. They have to be reminded. We, too, need to be reminded. So, first, we need to be reminded that we are to live for God among those who live for themselves. Specifically, first, let's look at how we are to live when we relate to rulers and authorities. This is it. Be submissive and obedient. To hear those words can stir up in some of us ungodly feelings. Be submissive and obedient. Now, surely this wasn't during the time of of emperor worship. If so, then Paul would not have been telling Titus to tell the people to be submissive and obedient to the rulers and the authorities. Um, Paul wouldn't have done that. Like, Jesus is Lord, therefore we know the state cannot be. And if you've read through Romans, and I'm sure most of you had, and you know Romans chapter 13, Paul talks about that the state's authority, it's been delegated by God. Therefore, our first loyalty is to God who delegates that authority. But should our duty to state ever try and take precedent over our duty to God, then we have to say with Peter, we must obey God rather than man. It's clear. Clearly, sometimes it's necessary to go against our earthly authority to obey divine authority. I mean, we see in the Old Testament, whenever the midwives, whenever they wouldn't dispose of the babies uh, back in Moses' time, Whenever we have Moses who defied Pharaoh, or when you have Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they would not bow down, or Daniel, he still prayed when was uh, told not to under the king's edict. In the New Testament, we have Peter and John who were commanded not to preach, but they still did so. So this must not have yet been the climate in Crete. It was coming under Roman rule. It was coming, but Paul says, for them then, for them And I would say for us today, be submissive to rulers and authorities and to obey them. And until our duty to state demands precedent over our duty to God, Paul says to submit, to obey the rulers and authorities he's put in your life. Be ready to do good. If you remember last week, I mentioned chapter 1, verse 16. Chapter 1, verse 16 talks about those who profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. And then Paul says, well, they're unfit for any good work Like, we're we're opposite from that. For those of us who know God, we live for God. We prove it by our works, and we are ready for every good work. Let us be the first to do good work in our cities, to do good work in our neighborhoods while submitting to the authorities that God has put over us. In doing this, you are living for God in a world that lives for themselves. Verse 2. Speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Now, I read this kind of like an upbeat tone because that's just natural to me, but my heart's not upbeat when I really consider these words. Wow, this is convicting. It hit me hard when I was studying this. Paul's telling us to live for God among those who live for themselves. First, Paul's saying, do so in how you relate to authorities into rulers, submitting to and obeying them. And then second, Paul tells us we're to relate to how we're to relate to everyone else who is not of the household of faith. Paul's saying, I want you to know, Titus, make sure they know that an unbelieving world is listening. 
Make sure that an unbelieving world is watching, and that's for us today too. An unbelieving world is listening. An unbelieving world is watching. An unbelieving world is reading what we say. Are you communicating and listening? Are you communicating to a listening and watching world that there is a God who saves? Are you showing that in how you treat people, in how you speak to people, those who are made in God's image? And that would be everyone. Paul knows that they're listening. Paul knows that they're watching. And we too know that they are listening and that they are watching. But my, we need to be reminded. They needed to be reminded then too. The world is watching. Live for God. Show them who saves. To put it another way, be the salt of the earth. Be the light of the world so that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father who is in heaven. Verse 3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Back probably a few years ago, I was coaching a baseball team with another uh, member of this church, and I was working with the pitchers one day. And I, I was on the mound with these boys, you know, this group of boys, and I was explaining to them how to pitch. <clears throat> I was explaining to them the like, you know, this is how you start your wind-up. You know, this is how you get off the back of the mound. Uh, this is how you pitch from the stretch. This is what a balk is. You know, this is how you approach, bend your back. I was giving them all these instructions. These, you know, this group of 9 and 10-year-olds just couldn't get it right. And I thought, well, I'm going to have to just show them myself, you know. Let me see the ball. I grabbed that ball, and I uh, began my wind-up, and I was going to give this, I was going to the little catcher, you know, down the, on the other side of the plate. I was going to light him up appropriately, you know, for uh, his size. going to show him some heat. Man, I wind up and I fire that ball and it bounces somewhere probably closer to the mound than the plate. And it scurries off to the backstop. It was so bad, the kid couldn't even block it. How quickly we forget who we once were. Man, I, the way I was coaching those boys up, the instructions I was giving them, you would have thought I was starting for the Braves tonight. And then I go to throw a pitch, not as good as I remembered. I needed that as a wake-up call, to be reminded who I actually used to be. <laughs> it gives me realistic expectations about who I'm actually working with here. We might read Paul's instructions in verse 1 and 2. It's a tall order, and it might be our natural reaction to quickly say, but, 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 Paul, wait, 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 I mean, you don't know our rulers and authorities. I mean, we're living in 2021 here. You don't know how they are. I mean, Paul, really? I mean, there's, they're the ones who slander us. I mean... They pick the fights with us. I, Paul, you, you just don't know how, how downright mean they can be. It's like Paul knew whenever he gave us the instructions in verse 1 and 2 that we're going to need this bit of a reality check to remind us who we, who we actually were at one time too, which will give us realistic expectations about who we're dealing with whenever we're living in a world of ungodly people. See, as we live for God among those who live for themselves, we are to remember that we once too live for ourselves. The reality is that, yes, those who do not know God, they're foolish. So was I before I was saved. Were you disobedient? Man, I sure was. Man, was I led astray. I'm guessing some of you might have been as well. Talk about passions and pleasures. I had some ungodly ones. I'm guessing some of you can relate. 
malice and envy. I know at times I found myself hoping for bad to happen to some and wishing that good had never happened to others. I know I did things that made people hate me, and I hated them too. It's good to be reminded who I was before I was saved. Paul here, I think he just quickly goes into verse 3 to soften us. Just gently remind us that we too, we were once all those things. As a matter of fact, we still would be all those things. We would be enemies of God if it weren't for the grace of God. It's true. I feel like for me, whenever I read the instructions in 1 and 2, you might feel some defensiveness might feel some bitterness and some anger coming up. And just as my wife sometimes reaches over and puts her hand on my knee or just above my elbow to calm me down, to gently remind me, catching me, knocking me off my high horse so that I won't be bitter or angry. Paul's saying, whoa, 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 wait. Don't be bitter and angry at those who don't know Jesus. You too were once that way whether it's those who are at your job or in your neighborhood, whether it's those at your school or in your family, whether they live in your house or the White House, let us remember that we too once were like this. And oh my, can you imagine what we too would be like if it weren't for the goodness, the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior, if it weren't for the grace of God. Verse 4. But when the goodness and loving kindness of our Savior appeared. Talk about stealing the show. I've never been more happy to turn over and to go to the back seat than when the goodness and loving kindness of our Savior appeared. I was at the end of myself. Commentator I read this week, Tim Chester, he says that the reality is that we will never understand the wonderful kindness and love of God until we face the reality of what we are like without him. We must read verse 3, he says, with verse 4. And we must plumb the depths of our own hearts before we can grasp the height of God's. Close quote. Last week, when we looked at chapter 2, verses 11 through 15, I believe it was, we saw two appearings. We saw the, the, the appearing of the grace of God, and then we saw the coming appearing of the glory of God, both visible in Jesus. And then today in verse 4, we see another appearing, what has appeared, which is the goodness and the loving kindness of God, our Savior, which is also visible in Jesus. John Newton, he had it when he penned the words, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found was blind, but now I see. He saved us. Verse 5. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. I want you to think about your darkest moments before you knew God. And I want you to hear these words. He saved you. He saved us. That phrase, 
sits right in the middle of this theologically rich section in the third chapter, and it's there on purpose. For we ourselves, we were once foolish before he saved us. We were disobedient before he saved us. We were led astray before he saved us. We too were slaves to various passions and pleasures before he saved us. We passed our days in malice and envy before he saved us. We lived being hated by others and hating others before he saved us. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness. He saved us according to his own mercy. He saved us by the washing of regeneration, renewal of the Holy Spirit, of whom he poured out richly on us through Christ Jesus. He saved us so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. We live for God in front of those who live for themselves, remembering how we once too lived for ourselves and knowing that we have been saved by grace. He saved us. It was grace that taught my heart to fear and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. He saved us. Verse 5, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. I have no bag of works I'm bringing to the table. I remember whenever I applied for my first loan, I brought nothing to the table. I remember whenever I left home and I went back to Thanksgiving for the first time, I brought nothing to the table. I have nothing to bring. And one day when I stand before the Lord and before he lets me into heaven, I too will bring nothing. Nothing. He saved me, not because of my righteous works, but according to his own mercy. He saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he pours out on us through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Now, when we read this, maybe a different order than we expect. I I like order in my life. I like a schedule. I like a routine. I like a neat house. You can ask my kids. I don't keep trash in my truck. The bed of my truck stays empty. My toolbox is organized. I like order as well as process when I can help it. The Lord has made me able to adjust. But April will tell you one of the toughest times in our marriage, I'd forgotten about this, but she didn't was when we first got married and we worked together at a camp in the mountains. And this camp had a coffee shop and we worked in the coffee shop. I had already been working in the coffee shop. We got married. Now she's on staff working with me in the coffee shop. I have my order. She came in and she said my order was wrong and that I need to do it this way. I thought the the milk goes in first, the disco, then the espresso, then the flavor. And April's like, no, 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 no. You know, it's the, I forget the order. I can't remember now. I don't really care, but April cares. And, uh, and Hannah, who works at Creek Coffee and First Service, she came up and set us straight, and uh, April was right, just so you know. And that's fine with me. I just assume she is on that. But we have order. We like order. I want us to notice, though, the order is a bit different sometimes, especially in this passage. The order might be a bit surprising. Usually in the Bible, we notice the Trinity is Father, Son, Holy Spirit. That's, that's typically the order we see historically. Father, well, the Father, God the Father sent the Son, and the Son promised the Holy Spirit, of which God the Father and the Son sent the Holy Spirit. 
Even Jesus at the Great Commission, he says to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. But the order is a bit different whenever we look at these verses. And Paul is, describes our being saved. In verses 4 through 5, we see, we see the Father's mercy. We see that God's goodness and loving kindness appeared. It's God. Now, we know that's going to be, is visible in Jesus. But Paul doesn't even yet mention Jesus. Instead, he tells us in verse 5 of the Spirit's working before describing and naming Jesus in verses 6 and 7. Father, Son, and Spirit is the order we see in history. But Father, Spirit, and Son is the order we see in our personal experience of salvation. Yes, Jesus appeared in history, but without the work of regeneration in our hearts, which is done by the Holy Spirit, we would not recognize his grace if left to ourselves. It is by the mercy of a good and loving God that he sends the Spirit to open up our eyes so that we can see, so that we can be renewed, and that our dead hearts can be given life through believing and confessing Jesus, our Savior. That can't happen without the Holy Spirit. The Father saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. I want you to think of regeneration as, as new birth, rebirth, we can say. He saved us through rebirth. We didn't just need a makeover. We didn't need a new wardrobe. We didn't need to be cleaned up a bit. We didn't need a diet. No, we needed a whole, complete new birth. That's what we needed. And verse 7 tells us he gave us that. He saved us from our sins by being justified by his grace. As I mentioned last week, our debt to God was because of our rebellion against God. And that rebellion against God, because he's holy, it has to be paid for. The wrath of God has to be poured out. Our sins aren't just forgiven. They're paid for by the shed blood of Jesus, who died the death you and I deserve. Therefore, if you confess Jesus as your Savior, then your Savior he is. You have been justified. He saved you. And those who are justified, they become sanctified. It's living Christ-like. It's living godly lives, becoming sanctified so that one day we too will be glorified. Verse 7, we're heirs to God for all of eternity. And on that day, we will be with him forever. We will be like him, free from sin. Today's Reformation Day. Happy Reformation Day. Next holiday we have coming up is Thanksgiving, another personal favorite of mine. And one thing I love about Thanksgiving, my kids love about Thanksgiving, is we always go visit one side of the family on Thanksgiving, another side of the family on Christmas. So we don't see the Thanksgiving family at Christmas. So that means at Thanksgiving, we get Christmas presents. The gifts come early, and they love that the gifts come, I love that the gifts come early. Notice in verse 5, the gifts come early. We, too, begin receiving a gift, even right now. Before our time comes to be with God for all of eternity, right now, he renews us by the Holy Spirit. He's richly pouring him out on us through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Even though we're yet to be with God in eternity, he has come to be with us in time through the Holy Spirit. And what I love about this verse, this gift just keeps giving. It's just richly poured out. You need more, more, here it comes. Richly poured out, constantly renewing us. 
And before we wrap up, a quick word about baptism. No doubt many of you, whenever you read the washing of regeneration, you think of, you think of water baptism. And I would believe that the recipients of the letter back in Crete, that that likely would have come to their mind too. But it's important that we clarify that regeneration does not happen at baptism or because of baptism. That moment that salvation is done, that moment of regeneration, it's done by the Spirit enabling us to see our need of God. We're born again. It's God's doing. A baby can't decide when it's born, and you and I can't decide to have rebirth because we're so helpless and hopeless. We could not orchestrate our being born again unless the Holy Spirit opens our eyes to see that we are dead in our sins and that we need new life. That's how bad I am. In obedience to Christ's command, though, we are baptized after being saved. Again, to show to a world that is watching, a world that is listening, an inward reality that our old life has been buried with Christ. And in Christ, we walk in newness of life, being raised from the grave. That we now are cleansed by the blood of Jesus. And before the Lord, we are now white as snow. Paul says in verse 8, the saying's trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to, vote, to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent. They're profitable for all people. They're watching. They're listening. Many believe verses 4 through 7 were a type of hymn or catechism. Sure, I think I could see that because this is deep theological truth that's necessary for us. It's profitable for all people. Therefore, Paul saying to Titus, tell the Cretans, and the Lord is saying to us today that this is the new reality for those who are saved, that we are to live godly lives. It's given by God, purchased through Jesus, and we are enabled by the Holy Spirit. The world is listening. The world is watching. So show the world who saves. Live for God. Live for God among those who live for themselves, remembering how you too once lived for yourself, knowing that you have been saved by grace. Show the world who saves. Live for God. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, enable us to do so. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, of whom you pour out richly on us through Jesus Christ, Lord, we thank you for that glorious truth. Father, we need that can't do it on our own. Lord, thank you for saving us. And for anyone in this room who has yet to give their life to Christ, Father, I pray that you illuminate their need for you. Lord, you'll show them their sin, that they will turn from their old way of life. Lord, turning to you, receiving new birth, that they can, too can be saved. Lord, enable us to live godly lives in front of a watching world, Lord, we know it'll be for your glory, and two, it'll be for their good. It's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. All right, if you all would stand for the benediction. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Community Church, located in North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this audio content to share with others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Grace Community Church, go to graceccnc.org.